It's said that war makes the state, and the state makes war. And here on the Warfare Podcast, we spend a lot of time focusing on how nations start wars and fight battles, but much less on the lasting impact of those wars on society. And this week is a special week. It's the 75th anniversary of the NHS, that vital social welfare net that brought healthcare to all free at the point of use after the Second World War in the United Kingdom. But how did the Second World War impact and spur on the creation of a national health service of the NHS? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And to explore how the brutality of war led to a cross-political effort to improve the health of a nation, I'm joined by my friend, colleague, and expert historian, Gareth Millwood. Gareth is a historian of the welfare state of the NHS and the author of Sick Note, A History of the British Welfare State, published by Oxford University Press. Together, we sat down in my office to explore this fascinating history of how war makes a state, how the Second World War made the NHS. Enjoy. Gareth, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm sure you're not very often invited onto podcasts that are to do with war and military history. That's not because you're not an amazing speaker and a fantastic expert academic, but you are a historian of the welfare state of the NHS. Some people might think that the two don't go together. Exactly. I'm more of a post-war historian than anything else, but I guess if you're going to say post-war, there's a kind of a There's a war thing involved there that you probably should cover, at least in part. There has to have been a war for there to be a post-war period. War is the crucible of so much innovation, whether that be technical innovation or, of course, the whole changing of societies. It's one of the blessings that is alongside the curse of war. And I guess when you look into the history of the NHS, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, it is this week, the 75th anniversary of the NHS. Long may it live on, long may it live strong. But if you're to look into that history, then you have to look into the period that it came out of. And so that was July 5th, 1948. That's correct. So whenever I've been told about the history of the NHS, you're directly linking to the horror and the brutality of the Second World War. And the fact that it was this move, almost like a nation coming together, you can make it almost synonymous with the Blitz spirit to say that we are now a country that fought together and now we must look after our most vulnerable. And that included the soldiers that were coming home. Now, much like with the Blitz spirit, there's been a lot more revisionist histories over the years that have said, yeah, there was a Blitz spirit, but actually there was record levels of robbery, scamming and violent crimes as well. And perhaps people weren't looking out for each other as as much as the history says that they were. So to what extent can we say that the NHS truly is a product of the Second World War? I think there's a lot of ways that myth, and it is a myth, and there's obviously been plenty of work done on the degree to which it is a myth or not, but these myths don't take power, I don't think, unless there is something, some kind of evidence base behind them. There are always choices that we make about what we remember and what we don't remember, what we choose to forget and what we don't choose to forget. Part of this story definitely is exactly as you've just outlined it. This was a country that had fought together. And during the war, when a lot of the plans for a national health service are being formulated, they are on the basis that we are fighting this total war on the home front and the soldiers are fighting in foreign lands. Eventually, they're going to be fighting for something and we're going to provide something to those people who fought so hard. 
that is part of the story. And I think we'll get into a few more parts where maybe that's not so true. And we'll get into plenty of other myths about the way the NHS was founded. There's another war, of course, that's part of this story. And I would say this as the post-war historian, and that's the Cold War. Of course. And the NHS is part of this large attempt to plan the economy, to invest in human capital as a way of showing that liberal democracy is an alternative to authoritarian fascism and communism. So there, there is still a war element to this that we probably ought to discuss. I see. So when we're looking at that post-war world, we're actually looking at a gigantic global political struggle, an ideological struggle that is still taking place. There are lots of worries going on at this time that fascism might spread. I remember at this point, the French are trying to frame the uprisings in Vietnam as being tantamount to Hitler at this point, trying to draw the Americans in, and then they change and say, actually, it's all about communism. Are these the sort of narratives that are going on in Britain as well? To an extent, yeah. And the Labour Party is explicitly a capitalist, social democratic party. The welfare state is one of the ways that they're able to show that we are not communists, we are capitalists. Of course, because Churchill's gone. Yep. He's ousted by this point. We're into a Labour government. So yes. the country is looking to a peacetime leader. Absolutely. And the NHS is part of that much bigger change that's not just happening in Britain, it's happening all across Western Europe, including in West Germany. And the Scandinavian states obviously take this and run with it in the Nordic model of welfare that has been lauded in so many different places. But also the United States. I mean, we think of that as a place that doesn't really have a welfare state, but we're coming off the back of the New Deal, social security becoming a thing in the United States as well. All of the Western democracies are realising that, yes, we are capitalists, but maybe we need to interfere a little bit in the economy in order to that we can all benefit overall, whatever that laissez-faire thing was in the 20s and 30s. That clearly didn't work. And I think the war is one of those big events that actually shows how much planning on a large scale really can benefit you and still be, to a large degree, democratic. And so it's this alternative to maybe these other forms of government that haven't quite worked or they feared might not work. That's fascinating. And you've mentioned the 1920s and 30s here. And for all those who live in the UK, it must be quite hard to think of a Britain before the NHS. I certainly can't think about that. And all it's done for my family over the years and, and friends and sisters. And I'm sure all of our listeners in the UK will have family members that probably wouldn't be around if it wasn't for the NHS. But what was life like in the UK before the NHS? Take us back to those 1920s and 1930s, before the war. We paint a kind of apocalyptic picture. I guess when I think of that, I'm, I'm probably misremembering and looking more at kind of Victorian squalor and people paying to fall asleep on ropes and anyone with a health condition throwing themselves off a bridge because they can't live with the pain anymore. Was it as bad as that by the 1920s and 30s or do we misremember? Some of those stories are not massive exaggerations, but I think one of the things that is very difficult when we're talking about this time and we're talking about health systems is, first of all, the amount of things that are invented over the 1940s, 50s and 60s have completely changed what healthcare is. The world that you're talking about is pre-penicillin. Yes. Uh, it's pre a lot of the pharmaceutical drugs that really help to manage pain, chronic conditions, all of those other kinds of and things. And lots of the technical innovations that happened during the Second World War exactly to treat pain. Absolutely. And war being a very big driver of a lot of this kind of medical science, as we know from, again, from antibiotics, but also plastic surgery and various other things came out of the First World War. A lot of it going on in the Second World War as well, trying to treat malaria, various other things. Anyway, that's one of the things to remember is the health system was very different. 
The other thing to remember is that British healthcare in the interwar period was world leading, if you could get it. Okay. And I think we have to remember, especially both of us sitting in this room now are British and we are, at least right now, living in Denmark. We are, yes. We're not only British and so therefore probably a little bit biased about the importance of the NHS, but we're sat in a Scandinavian <laughs> country which prides itself entirely on its investment in a welfare state and up to 50% tax. Yep, which of course we're very happy to pay. Of course. But I think it is also worth saying that the horror stories that we hear today about the American healthcare system, again, are not lies, but there are a lot of people that do have access to healthcare in the United States. And We're leading healthcare in so many ways. And in so many ways. So this is not to either defend the American system or defend the British system, but again, just to, before I launch into this, be very clear that there are elements of this that are true, but there's also other things that we need to take into account. So this pre-war health system I think you can break it down into three different parts, because these are the three different parts that effectively make the modern NHS. The first is public health, which is things like building sewers, vaccination programs, preventing infectious disease, reporting infectious disease, those sorts of things. That was the responsibility of the local council and remained the responsibility of the local council up until the 1970s. So this wasn't part of the NHS when it was originally set up, but that is a big part of any national health system anywhere in the world. You have to prevent diseases from happening in the first place. And one of the ways you do that is you collect bins and you vaccinate people and all these other kind of things that we now do after Second World War. So we'll leave that one to one side. The other two bits are the GP service. So your family doctor, the person that you go to if you think something's up and then who can maybe diagnose you or pass you on to a specialist who might have a better idea of how that might work. Back in the 1920s and 1930s, you'd have had to have paid to go and see your family doctor. Right. If you were a worker, you probably had national insurance. So you as the worker would have been able to go and see the family doctor and then they would have been able to refer you on to somebody else. And you'd have got that through the liberal reforms that came in the 1910s, along with old age pensions and a lot of other things that are sort of the proto wealth. And so if you're working, you get a national insurance. Yes. Whereas it isn't paid by the employer, it's still paid by the government. It's paid by all three. So the idea was oh. that all of them would chip in. So this was part of the liberal approach to welfare, which we will come on to when we talk about the NHS and all of the different ways that we could have had a national health service. So the liberal idea, capital L, back in the 1910s, the idea was that the employer and the government and the worker would all chip into this national insurance service because all three benefited from workers not being off sick and not having industrial injuries. The idea being if they can go and see their family doctor before their bad knee becomes so bad that they end up having to retire through injury, that you'll be able to keep people in work longer. There's also the morale thing of sick people don't tend to be quite as happy as work. They don't tend to be quite as productive at work. And so as part of this kind of period in the 1910s when the stuff going on in Russia, apparently, I'm not a Russian historian, but apparently there's something going on. There are, yes, absolutely. Um, this is a way of trying to keep the workers from being too belligerent. So this is to stop a communist revolution. In part, that's definitely true. There's also this sense from the employers and from the state that actually we all benefit from a more productive workforce. So we should probably invest in this system. So there's a capitalist drive behind this to definitely. soothe 
communist ambitions. I think so, definitely. And to keep the human cogs of labour turning. Absolutely. And I think this is also a time where we've just come out of the Boer War, yep. where it's been very clear that a lot of recruits are nowhere near fit enough to actually be able to fight. So again, if you improve the health of the nation, you have healthier workers, healthier soldiers, and hopefully healthier mothers having healthier children who can then go on to be healthy mothers, children, and soldiers. There's a real sort of logic to the way that this whole thing is built up in empire and built up in the way of state building in the late 19th, early 20th century. And a war-making industry Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. So it's all part of this kind of machine. So when does this start to transition to a system that is free at the point of use? That is really inspired by the war. There is a real sense of, okay, we're going to have to have something, again, to placate people once this is over. But there's also a sense of, okay, what happened in the 1920s and 1930s with the Great Depression and with the massive inequalities and the big issues to do with the slums and various other social issues in Britain in the 20s and 30s, that this can't go on. There has to be some kind of alternative to this. That's where we move away from just having GPs available to people who have insurance, but the idea being that the entire population ought to be covered by this comprehensive national health service. Because we've not moved on to the third pillar yet, which is the hospitals. Oh, okay. And that's the, the big thing that is so difficult to deal with because these hospitals are massive institutions worth millions of pounds, even at 1939 prices. So being able to nationalise all of those, or almost all of those, and make those available to the entire population, that's the big challenge. So hospitals in the 1930s were private entities where if you're rich enough and probably higher class, you can pay for the best healthcare that you want. Oh, would that it were so simple. Okay. So this is where being a historian is a blessing and a curse and that you have to spend months of your life trying to understand <laughs> how this bloody system worked. So there were world-leading private institutions that if you were rich enough to be able to just write the cheque or hand over the cash, yes, you could go and you could get treatment for your mental health issues or for if you needed surgery, you needed palliative care, any of that kind of stuff. You gout. Just pay. I don't gout. know why. Gout what to else? me just seems like something that would plague people back then. Yeah, why not? Gout. <laughs> if you go, you need, a, you need a bit of hospitalization for gout, you can pay and you can do that. If you're slightly less than the mega rich, you might have a private insurance company that you are able to pay premiums to and then they might be able to cover all, all those costs. And you can go to the, you can have your choice of whichever hospital you want to go with within reason obviously there's geographical issues that might right but yeah. say you're quite rich and you live in london you have access to all these world lifting hospitals and if you can pay so that's quite a simple kind of one over on there where it starts to get more difficult is through people who are reliant upon wage labor the sort of the middle and the upper working classes who are reliant really on two separate systems one at the sort of the bottom level is the poor law so when we're thinking about workhouses and we're thinking about those old Victorian asylums, they're all part of this poor law system that is administered by local councils. It's paid for through local rates or taxes. And that provides the very bare minimum care to people who, in return for getting that care, are considered paupers, which has all sorts of legal implications. I'm not a, an interwar or a Victorian legal expert, but things like if you went into the workhouse it could result in losing your right to vote. So these are institutions that are not funded particularly well for the most part. 
they also carry a stigma with them. And the idea being that you would not rely on these institutions if you had absolutely any of them. And you wouldn't want to rely on them. These are like the most basic safety net you could ever imagine for society. So you go in, you share a room probably with tens, if not hundreds of other people in a poor house, in a workhouse. You have to do work while you're in there and you get the basics you need to live and then hopefully you can get yourself out of the poorhouse. Absolutely. And if you're in the poor law infirmary because you need some kind of operation or you need some kind of long-term residential care or whatever else, you might not be forced to work, but you are still having those very bad conditions imposed upon you. This is starting to get better in some parts of the country, particularly London, by the 1920s and 1930s, as people are starting to realise that actually providing healthcare is probably a wider good But even if you were a relatively progressive-leaning council, the chances that you actually have the resources to be able to invest in a good hospital are quite slim. The quality of care in these places was quite poor, and for anybody that had grown up in that environment, they would immediately associate that hospital with poverty and not want to be involved. So you want to avoid these places at all costs, and that's part of the Edwardian and Victorian idea that you deliberately make public services terrible to try and make people not rely on them. So that's the way that they approach unemployment. It's the way that they approach poor health. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics, and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So it takes something as monumentally catastrophic as a war 
to make the government, because it has to be at a national level, to then nationalise these private hospitals and to create this national health system. And it takes a war and drawing on the population and the people to really start to break down this massive class system that we have as well. Yeah, absolutely, because there then is this third type of hospital and this is where things really start to get quite difficult. Now, the Labour's position is exactly the one that you've outlined. Let's nationalise the lot. Let's make sure that everybody has access to good quality healthcare, regardless of their income level and anything else, because the system that we've had where the rich can just pay for the best and the poor are left with the worst, we can't have that. But there is this middle strata, and that's people that are earning enough to be able to put some of their money away towards healthcare or to join various sort of mutual aid kind of societies. So the third group of hospitals is a group that are known as the voluntary hospitals. And these are charities, so they're not for profit. They're usually founded by large bequests from very powerful people. They rely on donations, either people leaving money in their will or making large donations to the hospital. You still see this quite a lot in the American health system where somebody will buy a wing of a hospital, those sorts of things. That's the kind of thing that's going on in these voluntary hospitals. Now, they are charities, so they will, out of the goodness of their hearts, and if they've got the resources, provide care to poor people in the area. But the poor person has to know somebody who is involved in the hospital's running, and they have to prove that they're a good poor person. They're not poor because they've drunk it all. They're not poor because they're, in some cases, Catholic, or just on the wrong side of the tracks, or whatever else. You have to show that you're a good, upstanding citizen, and then the charity might take benevolence on you and provide you with care, which is obviously not the kind of system that, particularly the sort of the post-war social democracy kind of idea of being a citizen, all of these other kind of things, it doesn't really fit with that kind of uh, Seems quite idea. a subjective understanding of good. Exactly. But there's so much to do with the welfare state before 1945 that's also based on that. For example, the poor laws that could provide grants to poor families to help them with one-off expenses, or we don't think that this person should be going into the poorhouse because they're poor and it's not their fault. They're a good upstanding citizen, so the council will provide you with a pension. But no, you wasted all of your money when you were working on gambling or whatever else, so you have to go to the poorhouse. And this real kind of idea, basically, you need to prove to a middle-class person that you're the right sort, which is so difficult to do, and it completely on the whims of whoever's making those decisions. But for the middling sorts, so people who have skilled employment or people who have got middle-class kind of jobs, they'd often become members of a contributory scheme around the hospital. So maybe for paying a, a few pennies a week, you become a member, and so that would mean that if anybody in your family required hospital care, you would have that hospital care available to you. So it's like a pseudo-insurance scheme. It's not a for-profit insurance scheme. You're not necessarily having co-pays or any of this other kind of stuff that we hear about from the United States. But you can get hospital care for you and your family. But remembering, again, that we're separating off here hospital care from GP care, which is a completely separate thing. So you still have a situation where unless you're able to join some kind of friendly society or trade union that provides family benefits for access to a GP, it's still only the worker that's getting access to the GP. And maybe in certain circumstances, with the wind blowing in the right direction, if you happen to live in an area that actually has a good charitable hospital in the area, which is the other problem, maybe you can get access to care. So it's not just based on your ability to pay, it's where you live, it's what kind of schemes you happen to be a member of, 
It can be your gender or your age that can affect whether you have access. So you've basically got this mess of these different types of hospitals, GPs who are technically private contractors, but if they live in a poor area, they're completely reliant on their income from the national insurance bodies. So they can never make enough money to really have any kind of prestige or anything else. So rich people are getting a completely different level of care if they live in the right area. And yeah, the whole thing is a complete mess. And this is one of the reasons why by the 1940s, every major party goes, look, we need some kind of national coordination on standards, on provision. This system is just a complete mess that has grown because there's been no national coordination. It's just been where a private enterprise thinks it can make the most profit, where a charitable organization has enough donors in the local area, or where the local council maybe has enough money to provide good enough care for the people who can't afford any of these other different situations. It sounds like absolute chaos, Gareth. Absolute and, chaos. And when you think about the fact that you had Luftwaffe bombings of yep. major towns and cities, not just London, all across the United Kingdom, but you don't have a national health service, then all of these variables to put it nicely, means that so many people must have fallen through the system. So you can see why there is this massive push then to try and do something about this. Who is it who leads the charge? That depends really on your political kind of persuasion. Of course. So there's this conservative doctor, Hugh Byrne, who wrote on Conservative Home a few years ago, and this has been quoted by NHS historian Martin Powell, talking about an iron bevan the person that is credited with creating the NHS because he was the health minister at the time that the laws were passed through. And he really was the kind of person that led the negotiations with the hospitals and with the doctors to create the NHS. Yeah, that's who I've heard of. This is Nye Bevin. This is the origins of the NHS. This is the person that led the charge. Yeah, this is the person that led the charge. And that's certainly the story that is told by the Labour Party. And it's definitely told by the left of British politics. And we'll get on to, we already talked about the blitz spirit being maybe a myth. Okay. We'll talk about the socialist myths over the creation (laughs) of the NHS. But here's a conservative one. He says about Bevin and the NHS, Bevan was neither the NHS's father nor the midwife. He was at best an obstetrician arriving when much of the hard work was done and taking most of the glory. Oh, so if you were to have perhaps more of a centre-right leaning, who would you say is the midwife (laughs) of the NHS? There's plenty of different figures that we can go into, and I think Dr Byrne here needs to be put in a bit of context. This is a more recent attempt by the Conservatives to show that they can be trusted with the NHS. There's been a lot of negative publicity about the way that Conservatives have run the NHS, particularly since the coalition government took charge. There's been a lot of underinvestment in certain areas of the NHS. I think that's relatively safe to say with our political neutrality hat on. When you look at Michael Portillo, for example, who, for your international listeners, would we describe him as not a socialist, Michael Portillo? Yeah, I think so. Not a socialist. He thinks that Bevan was the father of the NHS as well and talks in quite long terms, or at least he did in the 1990s. Maybe his opinions have changed. And Michael Portillo was a former MP, former minister and was a Conservative Tory MP. Yeah, and an arch Thatcherite as well. Really big on smaller state spending, but even he was, no, Bevan is the architect of this and did quite a lot of good work in the 1940s. So this is part of a very particular issue that's going on now with the Conservative Party. The history is being rewritten. The history is being rewritten by the Conservative Party. However, there were key Conservative figures during the war who were in favour of a free-at-the-point-of-use health system. Okay. As there were Liberals as well. One of the letters that's always stuck with me when I was doing my research for the last research project and book that I was working on, which is about Dr. Sicknotes, 
doctors hate writing sick notes because they see it as bureaucracy when they could be doing important stuff like curing people or helping them or all these other kind of things. And they were really worried when the NHS was about to start that, oh no, we're going to be government employees, we're just going to be writing government forms for the rest of our lives rather than doing proper, in scare quotes. I'd be worried about that. Absolutely, yeah. And I think we all are. Whenever people (laughs) start meddling with systems like, oh, who's in charge now? What are they going to want? But anyway, he talked about the NHS and about social security in this post-war settlement. And he said that the plan was produced by a liberal, taken up by the conservatives and actuated by the socialist. No party could allow this luscious plum to fall outside its vote-catching ambit. So all three of the major parties, obviously liberals aren't a major party after 1945, but all three of the major parties in the interwar and war era are all advocating for an NHS. Okay, so we understand with Bevin where the Labour Party can put its origins to the NHS and the Liberal Party much earlier on laid the foundations for this. So how can the Conservatives say they have a claim to the NHS? The Conservatives also bought into this idea that yes, the nation needs some kind of health system. They'd also, they'd seen the mess that was the interwar hospital system and said, yeah, okay, we need some kind of coordination. So they bought into the idea that yeah, probably we do need a system that is free at the point of use for people to have. And so there was a plan put forward for a thing called a National Health Service in 1944 by the wartime health minister, Henry Willink, who provided this plan for a National Health Service. But he was more focused on the idea that people should have access to healthcare. He wasn't so bothered necessarily with how that was provided. So he was a much bigger proponent of keeping private hospitals, keeping the voluntary hospitals, because his argument was these should be community things. And this was this conservative idea of locally run community things where everybody knows each other will be much more efficient than a state-run cold system that doesn't really care about these sorts of things and also fears that a state-run system would end up costing loads of money and being controlled by bureaucrats, all this other kind of stuff. So he wanted to keep the local grandees in charge, you know, good sorts in charge of the hospitals, but provide free care for everyone. And this is the reason why the Conservatives vote consistently against the NHS Acts in the 1940s. Their argument is, no, we agree with you. Everybody should have free access to healthcare. We fundamentally disagree with the way you're going about it. So in this sense, when the Conservatives argue that, no, we would have had the NHS too, and we wanted to make sure that people would have free care, they're right in the sense that, Yes, an NHS would have probably come about under the Conservatives, but it probably wouldn't have been as comprehensive. And ultimately, it wouldn't have had that reforming ethos that brought everything under a national umbrella, which got rid of some of those inequalities of access and also made it easier for the nation as a whole to plan where things go. And that was one of the success stories of the vaccination campaign that we saw through COVID. It was the fact that we had a nationalised health service that meant everything could get out very quickly and very coordinated. When you look at somewhere that's more federal, like Germany, for example, they had a much more mixed kind of story on a national level, at least, than we did here in the UK. It is really interesting looking at the different parties because it shows probably why we have the fault lines we do in terms of the NHS today. But you have the Liberals that almost provide the ideological ethos and foundations. You have Labour that provide the NHS as we know it today. And then you have the Conservatives that provide the name, but would have probably been a very different NHS had it come about. And who knows, depending on who will continue in power, it may well be a very different NHS in the future. But if we combine all of those together, can we say that the NHS is cross-bench, cross-party, cross-the-aisle initiative? Is it a national initiative? 
in some ways. <laughs> I'm going to do the uh, historian thing. I'm going to do the historian thing of saying, let's more complicated than that. I think we need to separate something that everybody broadly agrees is a good idea and something that people actively cooperate on. Okay. I think everybody broadly agrees that it is a good idea that a more nationally coordinated health service that is, to all intents and purposes, free to access is something that needed to happen. But I guess what I'm assuming here is that there was always going to be the NHS as it came about in 1948, but that would have been a product of the political party at the time. So what were the other options for yeah. the different types of NHS there could have been? Yeah, and I think that's where the interest is, because I obviously I disagree with Dr Burns attempt to completely rewrite this history. In my view, as a historian of post-war welfare state and as a historian of the NHS, Bevan is definitely the father of the NHS. Okay. The NHS that we have today in Britain that started in 1948 and has evolved over time, over the 75 years that's been in existence, that's Bevan. Bevan does that. He does it through forcing through a lot of things and compromising with various different interest groups to make sure that the vast majority of the hospitals end up being nationalised, that in ensuring that the consultants that run those hospitals become effectively NHS employees, and by making sure that the GPs eventually are at least on board enough for the system to work. That's him, and he does that. We might talk a little bit more about how he does some of that later. However, an NHS or a health service of some kind, there were alternatives on board. The two people that I think are worth looking at are the Liberal William Beveridge and the Conservative Henry Willink. So people have probably heard of the Beveridge Report, this yes. report that's written in 1942, I believe, and is a kind of a blueprint for what the state should look like once the war is over. He'd been deliberately brought in by the government to build these plans because they thought it would be a morale boost. It would give people a sense of what they might be fighting for. But it would also force some kind of inquiry with various different, what we'd now probably call in management speak, stakeholders in the policymaking environment about what might be possible once the war was over. And Beveridge comes up with this plan, the Beveridge Report, which goes all around the capitalist world as a potential option for people. It was very popular in Scandinavia an inspiration for some of the things that they did after the war. And Beveridge's idea is that the welfare state ought to provide a bare minimum for all citizens. And it ought to do that because that is what citizens deserve as being citizens of Britain. So this is a national idea of Britishness and Britain and for the national good so that everybody ought to have access to good enough unemployment benefit because unemployment isn't entirely the fault of the individual. It's in fact, almost always not at the fault of the individual. It's a societal issue that happens when economies collapse or when certain sectors lose money, geographical issues. And so you provide people with a good enough care for when they're unemployed, they won't get into deep poverty. They won't get into those kind of major issues. Thinking about modern examples, you're not going to lose your home, those sorts of things, which can compound all sorts of issues. He also he had these five giants that he wanted to tackle through this minimum standard. So he wanted to get away from want. So he wanted to get rid of poverty. You want to get rid of disease, which is public health and the hospital system, which we're about to talk about. Ignorance. He felt that the world was becoming more complicated. People needed a higher and higher level of education to deal with that complexity. And that should be something the state should be actively investing in. Squalor. So getting rid of the slums and all the bomb sites and various other things that were a product of the pre and during the war. 
and idleness, which was unemployment. The idea that, yes, there are some people that are unable to work because of economic issues, but there's also, in his view, a group of people who will do everything they can to avoid work, and so you need to find ways of encouraging them to work and providing different opportunities for them to work. So he didn't lack ambition? Didn't lack ambition, <laughs> no. And he built this entire blueprint of how to change, basically, capitalist democracy. And his argument is the way that you fund that is through a combination of direct taxation. So things like education should be free. Things like hospitals ought to be free. The reason you do that is because educated, healthy people are happier, able to work longer, and are more productive. So it's a sort of a national investment. And this is the reason why the state businesses and individuals should be paying in through their taxes to benefit all of us. Makes sense. But he also holds on to that liberal idea of insurance. So he says that the way that you encourage people to work is that you only provide them with full unemployment benefits if they built up national insurance contributions. You only provide them with a full pension at the end of their life if they've been paying into the system. So it's an encouragement for people to work as long as they possibly can so that they end up with something at the end. Now, modern historians and modern politicians will make all sorts of arguments about how that disadvantages women because they're not able to work as long because often they're the ones with the caring duties, maternity, all those other kind of things. It doesn't help immigrants or people from ethnic minority backgrounds where they are more likely to be discriminated against in the workplace or they're less able to work for the 30, 40 years that they're supposed to work before they get their pension. And disabled people particularly who can't necessarily work constantly or at a high rate, it does affect what they're able to take from the system. But this was the kind of the liberal idea of this should work for the vast majority of people. If it works for the vast majority of people, therefore it is good. We're not going to go into the sort of the politics of all of that, but that's the general liberal framing of how this should work. His other argument was the state should provide a good level of service because we need healthy workers, we need educated workers. But those who are willing to spend more or are willing to save more for their retirement or their health care or their education should be able to access a private level that is above the bare minimum. And that was his kind of idea that the all of this stuff would improve the economy so much, people would be able to make choices about what healthcare they had, what education they had, all these other kind of things, and what unemployment protections they had. So this is the liberal kind of approach. And he said, yes, we need a health service free at the point of use, because we need healthy workers in order to be more productive. But also healthy workers don't take sick pay. So in the long run, we'll save money. That was his argument. It turned out that's not what happened with the NHS. <laughs> but the argument was that healthier workers will work more. They won't take as much sick pay. They'll also yeah, get their knee done early so they don't need major reconstructive surgery, which in the long run will save us more money. So this is really interesting. So out of all of these principles then, because I can already see that many of them don't translate through to a modern NHS mm -hmm. or even the NHS that's established yeah. in '48. which ones do translate through and how does it change? I think the ones that do translate through are the idea that we should provide free healthcare or free at the point of use healthcare to the population because they are citizens. This is a national health service. This is a British health service. This is nationalism. This is the nation coming together and protecting its own and itself. That definitely follows through. I would also say the idea of national productivity isn't the thing that we talk about so much now, but I think it's the underlying assumption behind why a lot of the stuff to do with the welfare state remains. It's this right. idea that actually this is costing us quite a bit of money, but the alternative might actually end up costing us more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another reason why there's a lot of investment in this. But those ideas, I think, carry through to the modern NHS. You see, that is absolutely fascinating. And when you think about this, of course, we all benefit from this today. Mm -hmm. But back to the war element. Sure. 
when you have soldiers coming home or you have longer term disability issues through the late 40s into the 50s, it's those veterans that will benefit from this, those yeah. veterans that weren't able to work and prosper in their careers during the war years. They were soldiers, but also through to modern wars today. You think about Afghanistan or Iraq. If you've got a major injury there, you're flown straight back and you're, you're flown to somewhere like Birmingham that has the world's leading unit on amputation or rebuilding people's knees after they've been blown up by IEDs. This is still saving the lives of troops today because we have a world leading or had a world leading NHS. And that's for civilians as well. Brought back Malala, brought over to Birmingham, rehabilitated. That just couldn't have happened anywhere else in the world. No, I don't think it could have happened in the way that it happened in the UK. I think there is this wider investment in this system. And I think the other thing that comes from that is also the lesson of the First World War. And that was what was supposed to happen after the First World War yes, of and course. didn't. Partially because you have so many more injured in the First World War than in the Second World War. Partially because the economy is even more ruined yeah. after the First World War. But also because there wasn't that investment in a state system after the First World War. It was left pretty much as it had been before the First World War. And you do have riots of ex-veterans. Luton, for example, yeah. big riots in Luton over the fact that they were promised homes for heroes. and Homes for heroes, this, yeah. All this care, and they actually weren't providing any of it. And I think there was a sort of a suggestion of, okay, maybe our casualties aren't quite as high, but actually the number of people fighting on the home front is probably even higher. And we've had to have an even more focused kind of system during this war. And lots of injuries, of course, in the industrial sectors of the UK as they're trying to produce this war-making economy both in the First and the Second World War, working with chemicals and different agents that go into cordite and things that cause longer respiratory issues. So all of this comes together. But I've never thought about the failures of the post-First World mm. War world leading into the NHFs we have today. So it's the world wars, period, that helps in some ways to produce the NHS. I would absolutely agree with that. I think you can't look at the way that veterans were, or at least the national narrative that is remembered the way that and veterans were failed after the First World War. You also see in the 20s and 30s isolated attempts to try to overcome some of those kind of issues. So London County Council, for example, tries to do a lot more of coordinating its various voluntary hospitals and public hospitals in the 20s and 30s. And the standard of care there does start to improve. It becomes the blueprint for the very first NHS in the world in New Zealand. They look at what London has done and they take that and have their free at the point of use health system that sets up. The other kind of organisation that's often talked about in this way is the Highlands and Islands Medical Service, which was brought about by the Scottish office because health is a devolved issue in Scotland and has been since time immemorial, where they had realised this geographical problem of you cannot encourage private hospitals or private GPs to set up practice in an area where they're going to be spending more money on petrol, just yeah. driving around from place to place, than they're ever going to be able to make from the fees that you're going to be able to charge people who live in poor, so crafting You have to subsidise that, yeah. Exactly. So they coordinate all of that and part subsidise it to try and bring costs down, to pay for things like petrol, travelling costs, understanding that because of that travel, a doctor's not going to be able to see as many patients in as much time because they're having to jump all over the place. And so that's not necessarily the thing that provides the entire inspiration for the NHS, but it does show the logic behind, actually, there are some areas that the market can't service even if it was working perfectly, and that there does need to be some kind of collective response to these issues. And that's another thing that comes from the 20s and 30s. That is absolutely fascinating. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about the NHS 
and its origins as we mark this massive milestone. 75 years of the NHS. May it continue for 75 years more. Depending on how well it does, I'm not sure me and you will still be here to be able to talk about this. We'll be into our hundreds by then. But if we are, we'll have you back on the podcast. Gary. Absolutely. That'd be great. <laughs> but you've got to tell us, where can we read more about your research on the NHS? You can read more about my research through, I guess, my books, which are available open access thanks to funding from the Wellcome Trust. So one of them is called Vaccinating Britain, and it's about the childhood vaccination service and how that grew from wartime vaccination of children to try and prevent diphtheria and how that became the modern vaccination service that we know and love today. And my other book is called Sick Note, which is about sick notes and about how that nickname became a thing and medical certification. I promise it's more interesting than it would sound from the get-go. It sounds very interesting and it explains exactly why it's so hard for any of us to get sick notes. Absolutely. Gareth, thank you so much. We'll put a link into the show notes and you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. I'd like to come back. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.